I have a house here. It's a little place, close to the ocean. Four generations of our family have enjoyed it. But now I wonder, will it be there for the newest family member, Charlie, when he grows up? Charlie was born just last month. Will sea level rise consume the land? Will coastal erosion carve up the beach and the community? How will warming waters and air change this historic and productive place for Charlie and for the rest of us? Hello, everyone. I'm Frank Sesno, and welcome to a WLIW-FM special program looking at the effects of climate change on eastern Long Island, what's happening, what lies ahead, and what residents, businesses, and neighbors can actually do about it. This WLIW-FM special is part of Peril and Promise, a public media initiative from WNET in New York, reporting on climate change and its solutions. Funding is provided by Dr. P. Roy and Diana T. Vagelos, with additional funding from the Mark Haas Foundation, Sue and Edgar Wackenheim III, and the Cheryl and Philip Milstein family. Eastern Long Island is already seeing change. Sea level rise is happening. It's up about four inches over the past 40 years in some places, according to research by the Long Island environmental group Defend H2O. Their projections suggest another 16 to 40 inches of sea level rise is possible over the next four decades. Stony Brook University's School of Marine and Atmospheric Sciences has found rising water temperatures are killing off some seagrass and marine species. Communities have seen firsthand that sustained heavy rains are causing more street flooding. To consider all of this and to explore what it means in the future, three people who know these issues, Eastern Long Island and the future very well. They're committed to that future. Suffolk County Legislator Al Krupski. Hi, Al. Hello, Frank. Thanks for joining us. You're a fourth generation farmer on the North Fork. You run Krupski's Pumpkin Farm, where you grow corn, tomatoes, and other good things. Born in Peconic, you're a committed conservationist. We appreciate your time. Thanks for having me. East Hampton Town Supervisor Peter Van Skoik. His family has been on Eastern Long Island since the 1700s, a small business owner who runs a residential construction company and seasonal charter fishing business. He's served on the town planning board and the zoning board of appeals. Peter, thanks for uh, stopping by. My pleasure to be here, Frank. Thanks for inviting me. It's great to have you. And Dr. Allison Branco, she's director of coastal programs for the Nature Conservancy in New York, an oceanographer who has tracked the impact of human beings on marine ecosystems based on Long Island. She has deep roots here and for six years served as the director of the Peconic Estuary Program. Allison, appreciate your time as well. Thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here. I look forward to the conversation and we're going to talk about some of what we're seeing some of what you're doing and where the future lies. So I'd really like to start with, with that kind of climate change and what you're seeing now. I mentioned a few things, but um, Peter, why don't you start? In your town of East Hampton, what do you notice has changed? So Frank, I think one of the things that's most concerning is that the rates of coastal erosion seem to be increasing and we're seeing erosion in areas that we didn't really see be before. Uh, you mentioned roadway flooding. It seems like the, the rainfall, uh, annual rainfall has increased very little, but uh, yet our flooding has. The storms uh, dump much more rain in a much shorter period of time. We see die-offs in the scallop in the bay uh, two years in a row, complete 
failure of the uh, scallops to, to sustain themselves. And we're seeing southern pine beetles devastate thousands of acres of forest here in East Hampton. You've seen some of that on your own properties, I understand. Isn't that right? The beetles? Absolutely. I, I happen to live in Northwest, uh, actually on land that one time was part of a family farm, was pasture. And, uh, so it's extensively pitch pine forest that grew up in the open pasture over time. And uh, we've lost uh, over 600 trees on our property alone. 600 trees on your property alone from the beetles? Yes, that's correct. And, the, and uh, that's a small number compared to the neighboring preserve land and other neighborhood properties. Al Krupski, over to you from your perspective, you know, countywide, and you're a farmer and you've got you know, your hands literally in the dirt. What changes have you seen? So what we've seen, like, anecdotally, people have noticed a lot. Um, and because we're a coastal community, people see this uh, the flooding that happens at high tide, not just, the you know, some of the moon tides, but sunny day flooding that happens. And it doesn't have to be a nor'easter to, to uh, we've got all the road ends you know, go to the creek or go to the bay. And they are, they've been used historically for generations to put, to put small boats in and they're usually dry. And now they're, they're flooded on a regular basis. With you, attribute, you attribute that to changes in temperature and climate? Yes, definitely. You can, the sea level rise is just, you can't deny it because of that, that kind of flooding, um, you know, growing up on the North Fork, these are road ends that everyone used. And there's also a problem with the marsh islands out in the creeks. There used to be quite a few marsh islands, and because of sea level rise, they're becoming flooded. And so then they, they suffer from uh, vegetative loss, and now you've got these mudflats. And the consequence of the mudflats? Well, you've lost your, your marsh grass. Your marsh is a, lot, a good part of the nursery and, and filtering for the creeks. And so once you lose that, then you've got this unconsolidated mass of soil that, that can move around. And, uh, you know, cause sedimentation in the rest of the creek during, you know, during a storm event. Alison Branco, you have studied really your entire professional life, the effect of human beings on ecosystems. So if we zoom out and we think climate change and you look at this and you look at this incredibly interesting, diverse and sensitive Eastern Long Island ecosystems, plural, that we've got, what changes are you most concerned about? It's really the flooding and all of the various aspects of flooding that are having the biggest impact on Long Island. And it's not unique to Long Island. It's happening, you know, all over New York State, all over the country and the world, really. Um, and because sea level rise is a major cause of flooding, any place that's an island or a narrow peninsula is going to get squeezed by that sea level rising. So on Long Island, we're seeing, as Peter mentioned, we're seeing stormier storms, bigger and stronger storms. Um, and that goes along with longer droughts in between storms as well. Um, but it's really the sea level rise flooding on Long Island where we have really shallow groundwater to begin with. It's pushing groundwater up. So that's, you know, it's flooding basements. It's flooding our stormwater infrastructure, which is a big part of why streets are flooding so much, because there's just nowhere for all that rainwater to go if the infrastructure is already full of groundwater and saltwater. Of course, the erosion we see is also because sea level is rising. And so that water is trying to squeeze further inland. And so it's mobilizing a lot more sand all around the edges of the island. Where are you most concerned or is the is the ecosystem most sensitive? Because there's ocean, there's sound, there's all kinds of inlets and bays and everything else. Is it a, sort of an equal threat across the board? Or are there certain places that you're watching most closely and with most concern? 
all places, you know, are, are struggling in some way or another. The, the areas of the island that have a shallower slope, um, you know, which is sort of the, the southern facing shorelines in most cases, because of the way the island was formed by glaciers, those are the most in danger because just a small vertical change in sea level translates to a tremendous distance inland that that water is trying to go. Um, and I think, too, the, the areas that are really in the most trouble are where we have developed right up very close to the shoreline. Because a lot of these ecosystems, both the sand dunes and beaches and the wetlands, can migrate inland as sea level rises if they have space to do so. But a lot of places on Long Island, we've built right up to the edge, and so they have nowhere to go. So they're getting squeezed, and then we're actually losing habitat. I'd like to talk about what is happening now and what each of you are doing in your various uh, respective communities and circles to confront this. I mentioned earlier that I have a house fondly known as in the dunes. So we're very close to the ocean. My grandfather bought that place in the 1950s. It was long before people talked about climate change. And I really do wonder, you know, what, whether that house is going to be around, you know, for, for my grandson, for example. Uh, but I've seen certain things that Peter, you and the others have done in Suffolk County that if I wanted to do anything with that house, I have to burn the property. I have to raise the house. I have to think about, because you've thought about, some of these changes that are coming. Let me ask each of you what you think is the most significant thing um, First Suffolk County and Al Krupski to you has done to anticipate and adapt to the climate change that's on the way. So this was, I was a town trustee in Southville for 20 years. And actually my son, uh, Nicholas, is a town trustee now. And so he's, we, you know, we've talked a little bit about the erosion and, and he and I talk about that uh, quite a bit. But uh, so I've seen the effects of the, the sea level rise. And so I did get a bill passed in 2019 that requires that Suffolk County DPW takes uh, sea level rise into a into DPW's Department of Public Works, right? Yeah, thank you. In Suffolk County, and then we have extensive road um, responsibilities that they take in climate change and sea level rise in their projects. So what, what does that forward. mean exactly? Well, if you've got a road that has um, ever historically flooded, whether it's from a heavy rainfall or whether it's from a coastal storm that when that road is reconstructed, you have to do the, the adequate amount of drainage and elevation uh, change to make that road passable in a, you know, in a storm event so that you know emergency vehicles and whatnot. So you're hurt. saying that you now have, the Department of Public Works has to think climate change, rising sea levels, all the rest, before they replace repair roads. But can, you, can you afford yes. to do that? Because that means raising well, you, roads you in some places. You can't afford not to. Because if you need to keep the road open, it's a pretty serious business. And when they're doing a major road reconstruction, they're doing a good job as far as you know shoulders and 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 curbing and drainage, especially anyway. So these these costs then are incidental to elevate a road in most cases are, but it's critical that they do that at the time of uh, a reconstruction. Peter, how about in East? Well, Tampa? most recently the town board. Uh, made a climate uh, emergency declaration whereby any actions the town takes, we have to consider the impacts of climate change and to try to alleviate and mitigate uh, making that worse. So in other words, every time we consider buying a new vehicle, we consider whether or not that particular vehicle can be replaced with an electric vehicle or hybrid. Um, 
we build any new building that we try to reach a net zero in terms of energy use in the construction of that building and that we refit other buildings. So it's, it's comprehensive uh, in considering how to alleviate and avoid making the climate situation worse. Um, you know, but we've also had extensive study of our town uh, through coastal assessment and resiliency planning, whereby we modeled what the different scenarios of sea level rise and storm surge would be. And as Allison said, those low-lying areas and gradual areas are most impacted. And I thought, I think we thought originally the ocean side would be most directly affected, uh, with the exception of Montauk. It's actually you know, the bay side where we have our harbors and creeks, that's what's, you know, most at risk loss of our, of, you know, many of uh, the development around the harbor. So you've been pretty, you're, you're personally quite outspoken on the subject of renewable energy and you're being quite active with solar. What's the town doing on that score? And is that also a climate change related initiative? Absolutely. You know, we started back in 2013 uh, by creating an energy sustainable committee when I first came on the town board. And since that time, you know, we adopted a, a comprehensive energy uh, vision. We were the first municipality in New York State to uh, adopt a resolution to meet 100% of the town's annual community in electric uh, electricity consumption and to move towards all renewable energy in all sectors by 2030. So, you know, it's something we've considered for some time. And if, if we've got the first uh, solar megawatt scale solar farm on the entire South Fork we did several years ago, we've encouraged people to use rooftop solar by aggregating uh, with a competitive bid, a contractor who can provide at a lower rate solar roofs. Uh, you know, we've refitted all of our town buildings uh, with uh, major town buildings with LED lighting. All these things also save money. We've we save over $100,000 a year just with the lighting upgrades alone on municipal buildings. We're now looking at street lighting. We've upgraded the Montauk street lighting several years ago. That's saving those district pairs a lot of money, too. So it's, it's a net loss across the... Allison, from your perspective at the Nature Conservancy and looking at the big picture of this and not being... You're <laughs> well aware of the politics, but you are not an elected official yourself. What is the most significant thing that Suffolk County and East Hampton have done? And what is the most important thing they yet need to do? I think East Hampton's planning efforts on climate adaptation are really um, sort of out in front on this issue. And I think that most other places in New York need to do more like East Hampton is doing. And I think, really? I, yes, because and I, I think East Hampton has felt enough of the problem that they've said, okay, it's time we need to start doing this planning work. I think a lot of places are doing a good job on renewable energy. You know, it's been sort of like the, the invoke thing to do for a bit longer. And so in New York, we have a lot of, of locations doing a lot of good work on renewable energy and good state funding to sort of motivate that. But I think it's really the, the planning to adapt to the climate change is where we need a lot more work because those are much, those are much harder conversations. It's not you know, it's hard to it's hard to give an anecdote and say it paid for itself in five years. You know, it was a no brainer. Those things are not easy to do by any stretch, but easier. But planning for big changes that are difficult. Um, that's the thing that we really need to buckle down and get going on. 
because we're running out of time. Al, at this county level, is the county moving to some of these initiatives that we hear the town of East Hampton doing? A more solar, electric vehicle. We'll talk in a minute about offshore wind because that's something that's coming down potentially in a big, big way. But what are the big initiatives countywide uh, that you're doing like this? Sure. So, uh, well, it's there's no question East Hampton's been a leader in, in this sort of field, in energy conservation and whatnot, for a long time. The county has also, and the county has a tremendous amount of infrastructure in buildings uh, and, and an enormous fleet. And so the county for years has been invested in, in energy conservation projects as buildings get upgraded. And, um, you know, whether it's the lighting, which was done here in Riverhead a couple of years ago, or the uh, all the air handlers, um, the, the heating and cooling systems, like it was done here a year ago on the roof of this building in Riverhead. The county's been uh, very aggressive in trying to conserve energy, and and also before I, even before I started as a legislator, they went as far as to put solar on um, covers on some of the parking lots that were existing already. So the the county's been kind of out in front of the of the energy conservation efforts also. And I think it's paid off, like to Peter's point, it pays off in dollars and cents, like immediately, because you start to, you look at the cost of the investment in that project, but then there's a few years of return on it, and then it's paid for, and you're, you're saving the taxpayer a lot of money, besides c- cutting down on your, um, you know, your, imp- your footprint. Peter, you have been a huge um, advocate of renewable energy. You talked about some of the solar earlier. Uh, so a twin question here. Um, what about offshore wind? How significant? How fast? How much do you embrace that? And um, what do you anticipate in terms of public support for that? Because there are a lot of folks out there who say, not in my back ocean, <laughs> not in my backyard. I don't want to look at that, no matter how much renewable energy it can produce. So what do you, what do you say to those issues? So I've been a supporter and proponent of offshore wind because I think after you take an honest analysis of how we can produce enough renewable energy to really meet our, the demands of our modern society. You can't do it with solar alone. There's simply not enough land area. I think something like 14% could be produced by um, solar. So we need ways of generating massive amounts of uh, clean energy. Offshore wind doesn't require any fuel to generate electricity. The fuel is the wind. We live in an area where offshore wind is and called the Saudi Arabia of offshore wind because there's such a regular supply of wind. Um, the South Fork Wind Farm, which has uh, been approved by the town uh, in terms of the landing of transport cable, brings clean energy to up to 70,000 homes here on the South Fork. Uh, recently approved by the board, you know, promises to help us meet our 100% renewable electric goals. And I think that probably won't come online until 2023 or so. Uh, it's still on the review process with the Bureau of Ocean Energy Management, but I, I suspect that will be completed. Uh, I think something like 70% of residents support offshore wind. Um, and, you know, we certainly have taken a very hard and close look at what the uh, potential impacts of these types of developments would be both on land and at sea. And, you know, to make sure that those concerns are adequately addressed and mitigated. Al, where, where are you? on? on now, I, 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 if I'm not mistaken, you have a windmill not too far from where you live, right? Right across the street yeah, or something. Right across from our farm on the main road in Beconic, Pindar Vineyard has a really nice, it's 125 feet tall. And when it turns, it looks, it looks wonderful, I think. 
you know, I saw I was there early this morning and it was turning and it looks like the future to me. So, you know, I have to applaud East Hampton taking the leader in this. Um, so and, and the reason we wanted to have a win code is that people could see it and say and not and kind of demystify what it looks like, what it what it sounds like, what it what it does to the, the environment. And and now you know in Peconic there's there's a number of big windmills there and they look uh, on farms, and they they look like the future. They're they're creating electricity out of the wind. On a, and to Peter's point, on a pretty regular you get the sea breeze every day on a very regular basis. So is a it's it's it is really by definition renewable. Allison, what's your view of the trajectory of this of this power source? I think it's an essential component to meeting the goals that we have and meeting those goals is the only way to sort of survive the future. And I think, I think in the next 10 years, we're going to really start to see the wind farms that have been in planning stages recently start to come online and be constructed. And I think, you know, I, I think people, it's right to be concerned, I think, and nobody would suggest that we should just put wind farms anywhere, anyhow, any place we want. We have to be careful, but we, you know, we have to manage the impacts and minimize them to the extent possible and mitigate them where we need to. But we have to understand that it's not as if the other forms of red energy don't have impacts. So this is a lower impact way to get a renewable source of energy. And so we just have to do it smart. And I think that's what we're going to see happening in the next 10 or 20 years. What would you suggest people in in your communities and circles can do uh, if they want to be a part of this? Al, why don't you go first? I I think it's important that people engage in, in government and, and have good contact with their elected officials. And so that elected officials know what's important to the community. Because otherwise, we only know what we know. And then we have our own ideas, and then we act on those. So like, the, what, what could people say to you, or if they were engaging, what would you need to hear for people to feel that they're actually having an effect? Oh, there's, I mean, oh, I get comments on things all the time. Some aren't county-related, and some are. A lot of it has to do with county infrastructure and county services. Uh, whether it's you know the county health department, or or you know the county department of public works that does the roads, or um, or public safety, so it's just a matter of people saying um, you know what's on their mind and what's concerning them the most. But to pay attention to government, uh, you know, and I when I talk to classes in school, I always tell kids we're spending your money, so you need to and, and this is your future. You need to pay attention to what government's doing, because we shouldn't um, operate in, in a vacuum. We should operate with a lot of public exposure and public input. Allison, what do you tell people on the eastern end of Long Island they can do? Well, I think what Al said is absolutely right. I think we need to make sure every elected official from the village all the way up to the federal government is paying attention. This is the biggest issue of our generation. And if we don't pay attention to it, our children will be looking back and say, what were they doing? Why were they asleep on this? Uh, they already are, by the way. <laughs> Many of them are already saying that. I hear from young people, students all the time. We, we know, In fact, so much of the environmental and climate movement is being driven by young people who say, hang on, this is the world we're going to get, and what have you done with it? It's true. And the other thing I think anybody can do, wherever they are, is just talk about the issue. You know, I think we have a long way to go to socialize this concept that climate change is real, and it's not a problem of the future. It's already happening and we need to get to work on it. And I think everyone can talk about that with their neighbors, their relatives. You know, you're at the beach and you could say the shoreline might be over here where we're sitting in 10 years. You know, I think 
I think that helps everyone just sort of get used to the concept and that will help us get over the hump to start addressing the issue. Peter, to a resident in Springs, to a business owner in Montauk, they say, what do I do? What do you tell them? I tell them that there are many, many things that they can do that can help and they don't really have to change their lifestyles in drastic ways. They can maintain their quality of life. They can put solar panels on their roof. They have a sunny roof. They can move to getting a electric vehicle. They can push for better rail service, public transportation. They can get a free home energy audit through the town. Uh, you know, they can change their LED lighting. Uh, switch to high efficiency appliances. They can think about not buying things that are of single use, that are just completely disposable and, and using things over again, uh, salvaging things to use. You know, uh, you don't have to just throw everything away uh, just because it gets a little shabby, just, you know, maybe paint it up a little bit. Uh, little things like that, they all add up and, uh, you know, consider how you, how you live your life and, and, it's not a big uh, sacrifice in, in many cases. Uh, I put solar panels on my roof three years ago, and I'm saving like $100 a month on my electric bill and producing more energy than I actually use. So that's going back onto the grid. You know, if everybody who can do that takes advantage of it, and it's not that expensive to do between the state, you know, uh, credits and federal credits. Uh, and what you would save on electric bill, it actually pays for itself as Al said, making these improvements pay for themselves over time, and then you're just banking the money after that. So as we close here, let me ask each of you, if someone who's listening has a question or would like to learn more about this, where would you direct them? Al Krupski, where would you direct them at the Suffolk County level? Uh, I, I'd say go to any, any town board meeting, any county legislative meeting, any village board meeting, and find out what your municipality is, is doing because they are connected with, um, there's a very good network of, of uh, village officials and town officials and county officials. There's a very good network of uh, state officials of government working together. And, and then of course there's resources like the Nature Conservancy that you can tap into for, for information on, on how we can work better as a community. Allison? Yeah, I would say the the websites of the Nature Conservancy and other environmental organizations and state and federal and local, in a lot of cases, government agencies have a lot of really good local information available. And I think, too, um, you know, in, in places where local government is starting to work on this issue and do planning, they can get directly involved and learn a lot more, you know, look at the maps, draw on the maps with the state officials or with the town officials and really get personally involved in in what the future of their place is going to look like. Peter, finally to you. Well, uh, residents can contact our uh, natural resources department or my office for more information, or they can go to our town website, ehamptonny.gov, and get the latest information about what's available. And uh, the town does offer a number of programs. We have a solarized program to help you navigate that. If you want to improve water quality, you can get uh, grants for upgrading your septic to an innovative alternative. And uh, you can also get a free home energy audit uh, and understand where you're throwing money away and simple improvements you can make that uh, will save you money and save the use of fossil fuels. And just don't use fossil fuels wherever you don't need to. We've recently encouraged people to switch from gas-powered leaf blowers to electric leaf blowers and all these things take some time transition-wise, but we need to keep moving 
we do need to keep moving forward. And with that, I want to thank all of you for this conversation. Eastern Long Island is an incredibly beautiful and productive and precious place. It is very much subject to the whims of nature and it feels the weather and climate in ways that other parts of the country feel less intensely and less quickly. And so we've seen some of that and this conversation has been very helpful to shed the light on what's already happening, some of the actions that you're taking and the things that you're looking at down the line and, and perhaps some of the things that we can do individually as members of the community. So I wanna thank you, Al Krupski, Suffolk County Legislator, Peter Van Skoik, East Hampton Town Supervisor and Alison Branco, Director of Coastal Programs for the Nature Conservancy. Thank you all very much for your time. Thank, thank you. Thank you, Frank, appreciate the opportunity. It's been a great pleasure. This WLIW-FM special program is distributed in part by Peril and Promise, a public media initiative from PBS flagship station WNET in New York, reporting on the human stories of climate change and its solutions. Major funding for Peril and Promise is provided by Dr. P. Roy and Diana T. Bagelos, with additional funding from the Mark Haas Foundation, Sue and Edgar Wackenheim III, and the Cheryl and Philip Milstein family. You can learn more at pbs.org slash peril and promise and on the WLIW-FM website at WLIW.org slash radio. Please check out all these resources so that you can be an active and engaged voice in your community. I'm Frank Sesno. Thank you so much for listening.